Hey, this is Dave Burgess, and you are listening to The Dave Burgess Show, where we talk education, lifestyle, entrepreneurship, fitness, wellness, principles of success, interview elite performers in their field, and most importantly, cover topics that will empower, inspire, and uplift you. Let's go. Hey, welcome to episode 30 of The Dave Burgess Show, and I have a good friend on with me today. And that is Matt Miller. Matt Miller is one of the most beloved educational bloggers. His blog is fantastic, the Ditch That Textbook blog. He is the creator of Ditch Summit, a free online professional development opportunity for educators. He's a former Spanish teacher, an incredible keynote speaker, workshop presenter, a professional development of all types. He is the author of, get ready for this, six books including Ditch That Textbook, Ditch That Homework, Don't Ditch That Tech, Tech Like a Pirate, Do More with Google Classroom, and the brand new AI for Educators, which is just burning up the charts on Amazon and creating a big impact out there. And so, Matt, welcome to the show. Oh, my goodness. After all of that, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, <laughs> no, you, I appreciate you it. Live, you have a lot to live up uh, yeah. to, Matt. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I guess. So Matt, uh, I'm not going to bury the lead on this one. A lot of times I do a lot of background information and all that first, but this time something really big has just happened and that and that's that you released a book on a topic that is seems to be all anyone can talk about in educational yeah. circles right now, and that is AI. And so I wanted to start by just asking you kind of how did you first get involved in this? What's been your, you know, this has happened all so fast. Uh, what is it that led you to want to put this book out into the marketplace so quickly? I think part of it is the 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 way that people have started taking to it, like the 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 interest that that has come from it. And then after, I think it was this way with me, but also with other people. After you start to see what the potential is for some of these AI tools, you start to see a whole different perspective on the future. You know, like it it just starts to kind of blow your mind really fast. Um, I learned about chat GPT, which I think was sort of like the first, like almost like familiar human face that a lot of us put on artificial intelligence. I saw it um, in December for the very first time. I was dropping my kids off at youth group at church and some of my, uh, my own kids' friends were asking it to write silly stories. And so at first it was like the silly story creator. And I'm like, oh, that's fun. Here, I'll try it too. And I started asking it other questions. And all of a sudden, you know, just like dropping my kids off for youth group, I had this like existential crisis because I started to, I mean, just real quickly, I started to see, oh, it can do this. Oh, it can do this. Oh, it can do this really well. And then, you know, I it's probably like what a lot of people did. I started going, well, if it can do, you know, if it can write essays, if it can write articles, if it can write summaries, if it can write code, if it can write all of this stuff, what does this mean? What is this? And, you know, my my mind just started spinning like everybody else's. And um, so the more that I thought about it and the more that I learned about it, and researched it and tried it and everything, I started to see that there are lots of things that we need to think about, conversations that we need to have you know, with our teaching staffs, with our colleagues, with our students, with the community around us. Um, 
there are lots of decisions and policy and all sorts of things that need to be made. And I think a lot of people just don't realize all of it. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're a, a teacher and, you know, this thing comes out in December, you're like, I've got final exams to get ready for. We've got the end of the semester to get ready for. Like, I've got a whole other semester to teach. And you're, you're like head down and you don't even realize that the world is changing in front of our eyes, you know? So that that's why I thought it was so important to write this book was that there are lots of things that we need to think about and decisions that we need to make. And, you know, I wanted to write an easy to read compelling book that just boiled down the basics of those and the questions that we needed to answer. And that's, that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. And you did a fantastic job. And and one of the things that you are so good at, Matt, is taking technology, which is intimidating for some, overwhelming for some, and really making people feel like they can get a, a grip on it, get a handle on it. And uh, you, I've seen you do that multiple times over the course of your career with other technologies. And now with AI, you've done the same thing through this book. And so, I mean, I think that's really one of your, um, it's like one of your superpowers is to make people feel like they can handle whatever it is that the techno- the next technology is. So I, I love that about it. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. And that, that really has been my, my goal for the longest time. Like I know a lot of times we go into professional development about technology or there's a new tool or new learning management system. And all of a sudden we're like, I don't have enough time to do this, or I don't feel qualified to do this. Or like you said, you're intimidated and like, it doesn't have to be that way. Those, those little first steps are bit. And I think that fits with AI too. Like there are little first steps that we can take that will allow us to really quickly start to save ourselves time and start to incorporate it in instruction. I mean, just all sorts of ways. Yeah. And so some of the conversations that I heard around AI are uh, fear-based, I would say. And yeah, I think first of all, it's worth saying that's okay. Like that's, it is okay Mm -hmm. for there to be some very legitimate concerns that educators have about this coming kind of transformation that's happening and it's okay to have those concerns and but it's also okay for us to maybe point out some places where we've had concerns in the past and it turned out to be okay and that's one of the sections that you have in your book is um you talk about calculators and search engines google uh photo math i remember when photo math came like the like the the outcry about photo math and all these different things like this. And maybe if you could discuss a few of those and how that ended up actually being positives for education. And then I'll, I'll throw in maybe the the chess one as well at the end of that. Yeah, because you're the one that inspired the chess one that ended up in the book. But um, I think for some of us at this point uh, that have been in some of the, you know, like social media circles that have been talking about and hearing about AI, we might be sick of the ca- calculator analogy at this point. Yeah. But um, I think it's an apt one and it's a it it's a it's a good thing to think about because you know, when calculators came around, you know, all of a sudden teachers still wanted kids to be able to, you know, do calculations by hand. And they'd say, Well, you know, when are you gonna have a calculator in your pocket all the time? Well, surprise, we have supercomputers in our pockets all the time now. And so um, once we got over that, and see, this is this is the, the thing that extrapolates out to all of the technologies. Once we got over that initial view of it and we started to adapt it, 
it allowed us to get to higher levels of thinking and higher levels of math in this case faster because we weren't spending so much time on the routine calculations. Switch over to search engines for a little bit. You know, there was a fear that, oh my goodness, they're going to just look up all of the answers and like, what, what is that going to say about humanity? And then eventually it started to assimilate itself into the classroom. And then learning since then has become a little bit less about recall the right answer right off the top of your head. And it's more about what can you do with it? See, I, I kind of think, and, and AI, I think, is going to be very much like that, too. Um, especially, you know, this this generative AI, like ChatGPT is, um, you know, like, uh, you know, Dolly and uh, some of the image generators. And, the, you know, there's like all sorts of these uh, generative AI that create things for you. And once we start to get a feel for what they do and what they can do, they're going to fit like a lot of those other things. And the analogy I keep using is that it's like ships in the harbor. And whenever the tide comes in, all of the ships rise. All of the ships go up. And I feel like with AI, and just like you said earlier, I think there's there's room for and a need for skepticism to go with the optimism. But you know, the optimistic side of me anyway sees that the tide is going to come in. And some of the things that we used to spend time doing um, that aren't getting at, you know, the highest level of humanity that we are. Like, what what are we born to do? What are we made to do? What are we as humans special and capable of? Um, some of the things that aren't the essence of what it means to be a human are going to be done by AI to save us time for the more important things. And see, when that starts to happen, again, it's like the 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 tide coming into the harbor and here come all of those ships and they all go up, which means that now maybe we'll be able to get to some of the things that we weren't able to before, or it'll take us less time, you know, in the curriculum over the course of a student's career to get to a certain point. And then we're, you know, that let that kind of like levels us up to, to higher, higher levels of being, I think. So um, with all of those comparisons, I think that's the the big uh, conclusion that I come to from all of that is that I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic that this is going to lead us to bigger and better things. Yeah. And I agree. And the chess example is this, and uh, I promise the listeners that I won't go too crazy on this because I could talk for like an hour just on this one. But <laughs> so the chess example is this in 1997, Deep Blue, uh, a chess computer, defeated Gary Kasparov, who was the the world champion at that time in chess. And it was this big moment where I remember actually the computer defeated the world champion, the best player in the world. And it was this kind of like watershed moment. And looking back, it was very close, by the way, and uh, Gary had won the first match in 1996. Looking back on that now, it's insane because the top chess engines now in the world, it, it wouldn't even be worth having a match with like the greatest human, the best human in the world right now is Magnus Carlsen. Magnus Carlsen would be absolutely destroyed by the top chess engines. There is no one that can come near defeating a chess computer anymore in chess. And so the fear of course, was this was going to destroy chess. Like what the computers are better than us. Like it ruins the game now. And absolutely that has not been the truth. Chess is experiencing the biggest boom in history right now. 
Um, and one of the reasons is because of the chess computers. Chess computers have become a tool in the arsenal of all the top players. And not just the top players, but amateur players like myself as well. Like I use chess computers now. I can analyze games where before I wouldn't be able to figure out what I had done wrong after a loss. Now I can plug it into the uh, to the chess engine, and the chess engine can show me exactly where I went wrong, exactly what new like where I where I could have done something differently. And now I'm improving my game exponentially with the use of the chess computer as a tool. And it's even shown like the top players in the world now, all of them use the top use chess engines and uh, to research and to 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 look at ideas. And it's shown new ways of playing. So it's actually raised the level of human play because it's shown like, oh, you know what? Actually, if you gain more space in this position, you can gain an advantage. Like it's, show, it's shown whole new strategies and ways to play certain positions that other that you know we didn't previously understand. And so it's actually increased the human understanding of chess and become this tool. And that's the way I think of like Google. How do we look at Google? Google's a tool. It's a tool in our toolbox now that has helped us in education and just the same with all these other things. And so that's the same thing that's going to happen with AI. It's just going to elevate what we do. It's not going to be something that um, replaces humanity. It's going to elevate it. I, I think you're right. Yeah. You know, um, and that, you know, when if you switch that over into teaching, doesn't that make you start to wonder, like, once AI starts to enter into the conversation, what ways will our instruction shift? What new teaching strategies will we get? What what new strategies will we use to help students learn to read or to develop new skills? Like It's just like you said with the, the chess engines, because you can do all of those repetitions of games at such speed and learn from all of the patterns that you're seeing and start to see, you know, what what are the commonalities that you can take out of all of that? It just makes you go, well, where else are we going to be able to to do that in in humanity? So I, I think the the question isn't the big the bigger question isn't going to be, is AI going to replace me? I think the bigger question is going to be, you know, how can I use it to my advantage? Because I think the people who understand how it works and how to bring it into their lives and into their work are going to be at a significant advantage over the people that don't. Yeah. And I can't remember who it was who said this, but I heard someone say, AI is not going to replace humans. What's going to happen is that humans that aren't effectively using AI might be replaced. Right. <laughs> but exactly. it's not going to replace the humans. And so I think that's going to be the truth in education. And, and you said something in the book that I absolutely love. And I think it's important to understand this is early. <laughs> and so what we are seeing right now with AI at the rate that this technology is improving and changing, like it's it's only like what's going to happen in a year, two years, three years, four, it's going to absolutely blow people's mind. This is not something that's going away. This is not something that is a trend, like just a fad. This is something that is transformative that's happening. And the the phrase you used in the book, you said, we can't look at the world through today glasses. We must use our tomorrow glasses. One of the best quotes in the book, uh, Matt. And so uh, when you think about that, uh, like what were you getting at with that quote? Yeah, that just, that makes me think about um, the way that... I, it, I really came to it from seeing people's reaction to chat GPT. Um, and so I think a lot of times people looked at it and their first thought was, we got to block this. 
we get, we got to, I don't like this. This, this isn't, this isn't good. It's because we were looking at it through today glasses and, you know, today glasses are looking at our surroundings and making judgments on them based on the way the world is today and the way that it was when we were younger, you know, like today is what was our future. Our future is today, you know, in, in a lot of ways. And when you look at it that way, you go, well, that doesn't fit with what I'm familiar with. But if you start to put on your tomorrow glasses, you start to see, if you start to look at what it's going to look like. I mean, an example that I, that I use in the book, think of a student who's 10 years old right now, 10 years old. In eight years, that student, unless there's some big overhaul in education and we don't graduate kids out of high school at 18 anymore, but um, that that student is going to graduate high school in eight years. The AI that we know of right now is going to be eight years smarter when that kid graduates high school. Eight years, this will have progressed. If you watched, I mean, just using ChatGPT as an example. If you've watched it from the time that it came out on, you know, GPT-3 technology, then there was like GPT-3.5, and now we're in GPT-4, just in that short amount of time, I mean, it's been like six months, and all of a sudden, it can do leaps and bounds more than it did before. We're, We're talking about eight years here, and that's just a high school graduation. And then if you go an additional four years to, again, assuming that higher education is going to look the way that, I don't know about you, but I I feel like higher education is ripe for an overhaul, but that's a podcast for another day. But if you give them another four years, now all of a sudden that 10-year-old kid has had AI getting maturing for 12 whole years, and now it's time for that kid to enter the workforce. What is that even going to look like? Yeah, we won't even. See, we when you even, start to ask, we can't even imagine hardly what it's going to look like in twelve years. No, no, and we can't. I mean, it's going to be hard for us to. If we can at least just look several years into the future, then we're putting on our tomorrow glasses. That's where the analogy comes from, right? We're starting to, we're starting to try to figure out what it's going to look like for those kids out there and not what makes us feel uncomfortable today. Now, here's the tricky thing about tomorrow glass. I didn't get this deep into this uh, into this part in the book, but I've been thinking about it a lot since the book has, has been published. Here's the thing about tomorrow glasses, since we're going to dive deep into this analogy for just a second. Teaching with tomorrow glasses is hard. Teaching with today glasses is easy because today glasses deal in certainty. They deal in fact. They deal in past experience. They deal in data. They deal in things that we can measure and things that we feel comfortable with and things that we can see with our own two eyes. Dealing in future glasses is uncertain and it deals with predictions and prognostications and casting a vision into the future and making you know, decisions based on what we think that's going to look like. And if you teach with your future glasses for very long, you're probably going to get it wrong. And we hate getting it wrong. But it's really our our students' only chance at being prepared for their future. Not our future. Our future is today. Our future is here. But if we really want to prepare kids for that future, for tomorrow, we've got to be willing to put on those tomorrow glasses and to take some risks and to make some imperfect decisions. 
you know, and and take some imperfect actions and get it wrong sometimes. We've got to be willing to do that if we want to give our students any sort of a chance at being prepared for that future. Yeah. In in Teach Like a Pirate, I used a quote from R. Buckminster Fuller. And it's I think it's a perfect quote for the moment. The quote was, don't fight forces, use them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the that we're in that place right now where a lot of people want to fight this force and they want to like try to to kind of stem this tide, but you're not going to. And so the better, the more proactive response is like, okay, this is coming. So how can I use this? How can I use this most effectively? How can I use this to help me as an educator, but also help my students? And like you said, help my students in, in envisioning what their future is going to look like as well. Um, but let's use the today glasses for a second. I want to give you an example of today glasses. So, and when I was browsing through the book, Matt, I laughed because you have a section in there, 30 ways AI can support teaching and learning. And the example that I was going to give today on the podcast, well, man, you are, you stole it already. It was a number, it was number 30 in the book, but so here, here's what it is. Uh, my youngest son, Finn was applying f- was applying for a program and needed to have two letters of recommendation. Contacted someone, said, hey, can you write me a letter of recommendation? And the person wrote back to Finn and said, I would love to write you a letter of recommendation. Do me a favor. Will you put together the skeleton of the letter for me? And then I'll personalize it and uh, send it back to you. And Finn was like, so I have to write write my own letter of recommendation? I said, chat GBT right now. Like tell them what kind of program you're applying for. Letter of recommendation, who you are, a couple of things about you. Let ChatGPT do it. In minutes, ChatGPT Finn read it to me. I couldn't believe how good it was. It was incredible. Now, were there things that needed to be changed? Absolutely. Did it have to be personalized? Absolutely. But the structure of it and some of the phrases and, and, you know, that are fantastic for letters of recommendation, all that, that was all there. And then that was enough for, in just a matter of minutes, Finn was able to personalize it, send it to the person who then of course put their own personalizations on it and sent it back. But that took Finn from a place of overwhelm, like, oh my gosh, I have to write this letter of recommendation. All of a sudden, Finn had something to, it was not working with a blank page anymore, but had something to work with and then was able to personalize that and edit that and send it off. And it was, I mean, the amount of time and anxiety that it mm-hmm. saved in that moment, that's like a perfect example of that. I mean, that's hap- that's today. That's something that happened just in the last couple of days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you think about it, I mean- any of us that have taught for any amount of time probably have had to do some form of a recommendation letter, especially like you and I that 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 have taught high school. You know, like high school kids need recommendation letters for all sorts of things. And once you've done about four or five of them, they all start to sound kind of the same. And it's because it's formulaic. You know, it's we we as humans and this is a perfect analogy for for ai i think we as humans sort of follow a formula like we create an algorithm in our mind of what a recommendation letter should have in it and so we start to follow that because we don't want to have to recreate something brand new off the top of our heads and so if they become kind of formulaic for us anyway then why don't we let an ai 
that has a data set that includes tons of stuff about recommendation letters and has been trained on that to figure out which ones are most effective and what devices to use. Why don't we let it compose the first draft? And I love exactly how you mentioned that. That's really what um, Finn was doing, right? Was He was creating the first draft and then passing it off to the um, you know, to to the person to 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 kind of like personalize it. That's going to be one of the that's going to be one of teachers' favorite things about some of this generative AI. You know, some of these large language models like ChatGPT is that it's going to create the first draft for us. It doesn't mean that it has to replace us. Gosh, that's one of the big questions I, I've heard. But one of the big concerns is like, is this going to make teachers obsolete? You look at the lists of the professions that AI is supposed to put out of business, and some of them have teachers on it. I'm like, no, no, that's, that's not going to happen um, because we're going to need to use human eyes and a human brain and a human heart to go into what the AI creates. And we're going to use what makes us uniquely human, which makes us special as humans. And that is that we know the other humans in our classroom. We know those students. We know what they need. We know um, what we've seen in our own classroom over however many years we've been there. We know our community. We know all of those very specific things um, and lots of other things that, that color all our answers too. So we take that first draft. And maybe what would take us 20 minutes now only takes us six. And maybe we find another task where, you know, maybe it's something that would take us 30 minutes, but it only takes us 12. And now all of a sudden, something that teachers have been dying for, something that they've felt that they haven't had that is going to unlock the door to them doing more um substantial things, doing more things that matter with their students, that one thing is time. And all of a sudden, the key is here, and it's going to open up the doors for us to be able to have more time to do things that that matter most. And it's all because of that first draft, like you said, like it's going to give us the first draft, which is going to save us save us time. So I think that <laughs> I mean, I kind of ran and ran and ran with that as a metaphor, right? Like, but I think it's a really good a, it's a really good example you can pull out of your back pocket and use tomorrow to save yourself time. But I think it also illustrates, what AI is going to be able to do for teachers and students in schools. Yeah, absolutely. I'm 100% agree. And that, that's a big pitch you have in the book is about the the time-saving factor of this. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, maybe, gosh, I wish I could uh, incorporate more project-based learning in my classroom, but I have all this curriculum to fall to. I don't have, I don't have the time for it. Or maybe I, mm-hmm. I wish I could have, let kids loose on some genius hour projects or whatever it might be. This is going to be something that's going to be helpful. And it also, I think, is a great source for brainstorming, for idea generation. So maybe you have students who are trying to decide what kind of projects they could do, what kind of things, they, and you could ask ChatGBT to come up with all sorts of ideas for you. So it's not doing the project for you, but it's giving you the ideas and the rabbit holes that you can go and explore down. And, and so I, I just think there's going to be so many uses for it once we realize that it's just a tool like any other. And you see what you just did there. You just came up with an example of how ChatGPT or an AI assistant like it could be used responsibly by students. 
See, I think there's kind of a black and white, you know, right or wrong mindset in the minds of lots of people who are just learning about this, who think this is a cheating tool. This was created so that my students can cheat in my class. Or maybe they think a little bit bigger and they realize, okay, it wasn't just created for that, but that's the only thing that they're going to use it for. But you know, you and I know, and if you're listening to this, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, you, you've probably considered this as well, that it can be used for lots of really responsible things. Um, you know, like you were saying, it can, it can give us ideas for what we might want to write a paper about or do a project about or something. Um, and, and the truth is, is that the students who understand how it can be used ethically and responsibly are the ones that are going to have an advantage. And we were talking about that 10-year-old earlier that's going to graduate high school in eight years and is going to graduate college in 12 years. And in 12 years, AI will have advanced. Also, society will have advanced in its understanding of how AI should fit into the world. And so the students who get modeling of that, who get to see the right kinds of ways of it being used are the ones who are going to be at an enormous advantage. I think about, for instance, when New York City public schools, they were the first like um, high profile school district that blocked chat GPT across the board. And of course, lots of other ones followed. But New York City was the first one that got me thinking about that. And I started to think, well, what about those students? in New York City public schools that don't get to see AI modeled ethically and responsibly? What if, you know, when eventually we start to figure out ways that the terms of use will allow students to, you know, to use these, which, and that's already starting to morph, like the, the terms of use for chat GPT have gone down to 13 with parent permission. So, you know, now there are more and more students who can actually start to use this. But if they, once that, once all of that starts to happen and the students can start getting their hands on it, the ones who can do that with a forward thinking teacher and, you know, school leader, those are the ones that are going to understand how it can be used in the work world. And like, we're starting to already by blocking it all the way across the board and saying, we don't want anybody to touch any of this. Well, first of all, we know that they're touching it. You know, if that's at home or on the cell phone or on the bus or, hey, Mr. Miller, I need to go to the restroom and in the stall, like looking something up real quick, like it's being used, you know? The question is, are we using it to prepare students for their future? Tomorrow glasses again, right? Like, are we looking to to set them up to succeed in in the future. And so yeah, there there are lots of like we were saying earlier, there are lots of responsible ways that this can be used and maybe one of the best uses of our tomorrow glasses here is to help students to see how this can be done responsibly so they can use it. Yeah, and how to more effectively use it. And that's one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that maybe like one of our roles is going to teach students to be great prompt engineers, is mm. the way that you put it. And it's using a tool like ChatGPT, of course, it's like any the quality of what you get out is dependent upon the quality of what you put in. And so it's not that everyone is going to be able to use ChatGPT 
equally because some people are going to be better at using it. Some are going to be better at what their input is, and then they're going to get a better output, right? And so I think this is important. The uh, I had Tara Martin on Facebook Live with me on Thursday. She used kind of a fun example from her personal life for ChatGPT. She was experimenting with it. And what she said is like, hey, I, I asked ChatGPT about what were some great data ideas around my area and like Lawrence, Kansas. And then I, of course, realized that, well, okay, wait, I have to do, I have to be a better prompt engineer. Have to tell mm-hmm. ChatGPT how old we are, right? <laughs> because otherwise yes. you're gonna get like a 16 year old date, right? So, you know, hey, I'm, I'm in my 40s, uh, been married for this long. What are some good date ideas? Maybe low cost date ideas within driving distance of me. And then ChatGPT came up with all of these incredible things, things that they've lived there their whole lives. They didn't know that were possible for them to do. Like, oh my gosh, look at this little hole in the wall here, or here's kind of a unique place. You know, and again, it was took them from a place where they're like, what are we going to do next weekend to a place where they had a whole list of possibilities and things that they could do around them. And that's, that's like a personal life example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And some of those, some of those, I mean, you know, once you start to, if we want to shift this back to the, the schooling side of things, like once kids start to wrap their brains around how all of this works, they don't just start using AI for their benefit and their work. You know, they start to use it in at home too, just like you said. Um, one of the things that blows me away is that um, if you tell Chat GPT the ingredients of your refrigerator, it will come up with recipes of things that you can you can cook. And if you want to make it like low carb or low calorie or you know just taste really good or whatever, like. It can it can do those kinds of things, and of course now that we're getting into GPT four, where you can use images, I've seen people take a picture of their fridge, and say, "Tell me what I can make out of what I have," and it analyzes all the things that are in the fridge, and then it takes it back to its data set and it tries to figure out what you can make. And it's not perfect, you know. Sometimes it thinks that your um, hummus is like a tub of butter or something. And so now all of a sudden you're, you're not, you're not getting something that's perfectly accurate, but it's, but it's pretty good. And it, yeah, I I'm glad you brought that example up. It, it really is incredible. Some of the things, some of the little things that it can do that, that enrich our lives. Yeah. It's going to impact much more than just school for sure. And yeah. you know, the example that you just gave makes me want to riff on another example I recently heard. And that it, and that's kind of where we are right now, where like everyone's yeah. like starting to share these things and like going, oh my God, you gotta be kidding me. Like, and it's starting to just build and grow, and people are getting more and more excited about it. So you mentioned the recipes. So I was just watching a video. This is something that is almost brand new with Chat GPT, and that is that it has now the capability to have uh like plugins and different things. Mm-hmm. And for example, you can connect it. Uh, the, and these things are all going to be coming online soon. If they're not online yet, you'd be able to comp- connect it with things like Instacart and with OpenTable. And and so the example that I saw in this YouTube video was this person said, hey, I'm going to be in San Francisco on Saturday and Sunday. I would like to go to a, a trendy like vegan restaurant on Saturday night, something that has a reservation available. And I would also like to have an easy to uh, make recipe for a vegan meal on Sunday. Send me the ingredients and uh, put them into Instacart and do the calorie and nutrition calculations for me. And so it had all the plugins. And so not, so then all of a sudden they found an open reservation, vegan restaurant. You just had the link right there to open table. They confirmed it. Then they went and then uh, came up with the vegan recipe. 
all the stuff was added to the plugin with the Instacart, added into the Instacart, plus the link to Instacart to the checkout. All they had to do is click into Instacart, press pay, and it was all in there in one thing. And and they checked out and it was gone. And like, that's incredible. Like this is just, this is, this is just within the last week that this functionality has happened. And so again, when you start to look out one year, two year, eight, 12, like in your previous example, this is definitely transformative. Yeah. And you know, thinking about that example that you just look at us riffing off of each other's stuff, but this, this is more like kind of analyzing what, what you just said there, you know, think about that, that, um, you know, with, with these plugins and that example, you're able to ask for reservations at a specific kind of restaurant and then also get a shopping list. If you want to be able to make the, you know, make the, the, the meal yourself. Two things come into play here. And these are for I want to I want to use these two things for the people that are concerned about AI. And again, like we said earlier, and I this what I'm about to say here doesn't erase that healthy dose of skepticism with all of this. There's a there, there are things that we need to understand and there, there are concerns that we need to have. But A, does your example of getting a restaurant reservation and getting a shopping list? take away what makes us special as humans. No, right? I mean, it it just it saves us time doing something routine and mundane. If I had to try to get a reservation, maybe I'd bounce around to different websites and try to find a reservation and it might save me 2 or 3 minutes, or if I really had to get on the phone and call, it could save me even more time than that. How about the shopping list? I mean, looking for recipes and figuring out what you need to get and where you can get it and everything that just saved you a bunch of time to do what makes us uniquely special as humans. It's like getting rid of on the teaching side of things. That's like saying I need to make slides for my presentation for my class tomorrow. Now I'm going to spend some time on Google images, digging up the right kind of image and making these slides. Well, if you can use an AI tool to be able to do that, does that remove the essence of what you are as a human teacher? I would argue no, because what makes you uh, unique as a human teacher is your ability to present it, your understanding of the context around it and what your students need and your ability to build relationships and all of those things. So those are the things that make you special as a human teacher. If you don't have to spend 15 minutes looking for that perfect image on Google Images, that saved you time and it didn't remove any of your humanity. And then the second side of that too, going back to your example, the um, the reservations and the shopping list, you also could say that there's a little bit of equity built into this too. Because think about the kind of people who before AI were able to say, I need you, whoever they're talking to, to get me a reservation at a restaurant and to get me a shopping list so that I can save some time. It's probably people that are able to hire a personal assistant or something like that, right? Uh, Which frees them up and gives them more time to either use that time personally or use that time for work. It gives them an advantage. Now, if everybody has access to that, it's starting to level the playing field. And especially if it's something like the free version of chat GPT that anybody with an internet connection has, you know, that starts to cross over an awful lot of barriers and starts to put us all a little bit more 
on a level playing field, um, removing some of those advantages that some some people had. So, um, you know, again, we seem to be doing a lot of this today. Um, you know, going off of that example that you gave, I think that those are two things that make me optimistic about AI in general. Yeah, and that's going to throw me back to the chest because what was a situation where for to really reach the higher levels of chess, you had mm-hmm. to have enough money to hire a chess coach because yes. the chess coach would help you to evaluate your games and positions and to show you where you were going wrong and to help you with strategies and techniques and research and all this kind of stuff like this. And yeah. now everyone has access to the engines. The engines are readily available and many websites have them uh, you know, embedded for free. And so now someone who couldn't afford a chess coach in the patch in the past has the greatest chess player in the history of the world, the engine there to help yes. them analyze their games and to find their weaknesses and to find where they're going wrong. And so there, there is, I think an equity piece to it as well as the mm-hmm. technology gets better and better. Yeah. Yep. Hey, so uh, another section in the book, Matt, is you talk about the power of uh, the the quote is collaborative work is the future of career readiness. And so yes. AI as a collaborative tool is maybe something that people have. We've been, we've been using a lot of personal examples, but AI as a collaborative tool is maybe something that people aren't thinking about. And so I'm curious what some of your thoughts are about using AI in, to increase collaboration in the classroom. Yeah. Um, so credit where credit's due on that quote. Um, and it's even a little pullout quote in the book. It says collaborative work is the future of career readiness. That's a quote from Victoria Thompson, who works at Microsoft. She's an education executive there. And I had her on a panel discussion during the Ditch Summit that you mentioned at the top of the show. Um, it was a panel discussion about chat GPT and AI and all of that. And of course, that was that was recorded in December, uh, where chat GPT was still very, very, very new. And so at one point we had been talking a little bit about collaborative work. And I think the context of the conversation was that um, if teachers are worried about students being able to farm their, their schoolwork out to chat GPT, what are some things that we can do right now? And we were talking about how collaborative work is one of those one of those things where if students are interacting in real time together, uh, it's it's a little bit more likely that they're doing that interaction out of their own brains and not necessarily, you know, copy paste mindlessly straight out of AI. And when that happened during that conversation, I just stopped for a second. I had to ask Victoria. I said, so in your work at Microsoft, how often has anybody ever asked you if you did the work for this project completely by yourself, completely independently, you know, just like we do in classrooms a lot of times, you and nobody else? And she thought about it for a second and she said, you know, I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before. But what they have asked me is how I sought out help to problems that I was having, how I reached out to other people to collaborate with each other. And see, that's where that quote came from. That was right. It was right after she said that, where she said, collaborative work is the future of career readiness. And I think, I think she's exactly right. And especially in a world where everybody has access to AI, um, you know, now 
sitting in isolation and doing your work doesn't have the same kind of power as it does as it as it did before because now you know we can sit and work all on our lonesome with the power of AI in our pocket but when we start to put multiple human minds on you know a specific task all of a sudden now that's a you know that that's a special arrangement that can't just be farmed out to AI that's something that's going to be a little harder to make obsolete and so if we want to prepare students for that reality and it's a reality that's already going on right now. I mean, Victoria works at Microsoft. Microsoft is one of the biggest tech companies in the world. And if their evaluation process is already asking how you're collaborating with other people and is not asking how often you do things completely in isolation, I think it's time that we consider, and I know there's lots of teachers that are doing great things with collaboration. And um, maybe we need to start paying more attention to them or considering how we can get this in the classroom even more. Yeah. So shout out to Victoria Thompson for that quote. And if you, she's great follow in social media. And so Victoria, the tech on Twitter, if you're looking mm-hmm. for uh, to follow Victoria. And so I know does great work in educational technology and uh, it's a great voice out there. So follow at Victoria, the tech on Twitter. Thanks so much for for sharing that attribution, Matt. Um, Now, I think another concern people have, and I love that you address this in the book, is that, again, one of our roles as teachers with this coming transformation is to show students how this technology can be used ethically. And again, that's adding our human component into it. And that's like, one of the pieces that's going to come out of this is that teachers are going to be on the forefront of shaping how people use this and how they consider ethics in the, in the use of it along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I love that focus. And, and even you have a, you talk about in the book about we need to get to some very serious questions about like who's behind the curtain, like who's making these, yeah. these algorithms and who is, you know who's benefiting from this whose voices are left out all these kind of all these kind of questions as well yeah yeah and i mean these are questions that we have to ask individually you know for for ourselves but i think it's definitely something that we want to include students on you know so so that we can help prepare them for that that future that we're trying to envision and yeah there i mean there there are lots of questions that we have to we have to work through. Um, one question that um, somebody brought up to me, I hadn't even really considered this, but one one question is voice. You know, like if I'm using artificial intelligence to answer my emails or write a letter of recommendation or plan my lessons, is that my voice? Is that my, and again, that goes back to the root of humanity again. You know, I think that's the big question we're all trying to to grasp is does it make me less human if I do that? And so the, the, if the question is if artificial intelligence did it is it still my voice? You know that that's that's an important question to ask. I mean, if you've got if you've got students that want to go run off to the the AI assistant, plug your essay prompt into it, copy the response, paste it in a document and send it away. That's not their voice. And it also begs the question, 
what happens if you do that out in the work world? Because all of a sudden you're doing something that anybody can do and that AI can do. And probably tomorrow AI will be better at it and will do it better than you will. So if if you're if you're relying on something that everybody has access to like that, then what makes you special and you know utilizes your skills and talents as a human? That's another big question that that has to be addressed. Um, you alluded, Dave, to the the question about the AI. Some of the questions we have to ask about the AI itself, like what's its data set? What's the data that it's pulling from? Um, you know, we can't have. Well, let me let me back up for a second. Artificial intelligence is trained on a data set. It gets all of this information. And it's able to analyze that information so much faster and so much more thoroughly than we can with our own human brains. And all it's really doing is it's looking for patterns. It's looking for like probability that that it's going to be helpful to us. And so as it's training itself on that, it's looking for the all of these patterns. Now that data set, if we use ChatGPT as an example again, um, ChatGPT's data set includes <laughs> probably almost the entirety of the internet, um, lots of books that it has available to it, as well as uh, lots and lots of other resources. And they're continuing to add to that data set. Now here's the problem with this data set and with any data set, it can't be perfect. There are going to be holes. There are going to be gaps. There are going to be flaws. There are going to be biases. That's one of the big conversations I've heard about AI. And so we have to, I don't think that's a reason for us to never use it, but I think we also have to come with that healthy dose of skepticism and say, what are the biases that I see in this? What are the inaccuracies? You know, if it's basing its response to you off of sources that are biased, then you know that that that's what's going to show up in the response it's like um you know we were we were talking about this earlier um there's this there's this old phrase from computer programming called garbage in garbage out g i g o which means that if you have garbage go in your response is going to be garbage going out um who is it william edwards dimming i think uh He's he's quoted with the the saying that every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. It's not always the results that the user and the creator wants, but the system gets the results that it that it's designed to get because there are flaws in it. So we got to ask that. We've also got to ask who's building the algorithm. You know, who is training the AI? Who is making those decisions on what it values and what it doesn't? And do those people represent a wide enough swath of humanity? You know, do, does it, is, is there representation, um, right. you know, gender representation, uh, you know, from, from different locations, from race, from backgrounds, from, you know, all, all sorts of different things. Like, are we making sure that nobody's being marginalized? There's, and that's just scratching the surface. There are all of these questions 
that we have to wrestle with ourselves, I think, but also it gives us this unique opportunity to have those conversations with students. And maybe it, I mean, maybe you have like a whole class conversation where you talk to everybody, but maybe it's just a little quick, like 30 second snippet while you hear student talking about it and you say, Hey, did you ever think about who's actually the one who's pulling the strings and making those decisions? Do you think that they look like you? Do they think that they come from your background? Like that's something you got to think about. Boom. That was 20 seconds. And that may have changed one student's paradigm about how AI looks. So yeah, I I feel like this is our unique privilege to get to share with students some of these things that they need to think about so that they're prepared when they have to make decisions about it in the future. Yeah. And some of those questions that we've been talking about remind me very much of my conversation with Julie Smith about uh, media literacy. Mm-hmm. And having having students understand that uh, it's not neutral. <laughs> the, the news and these things are like someone is making this conscious decision decisions about what is on the news, what is missing from the news, and why mm-hmm. that might be what what their agenda is. And a person who's uh, effectively going navigating the world with media literacy skills is going to be always asking those questions. Whose voice is left out of this? Who's creating this message? What is their bias? What is their impact? What are they trying? How are they trying to persuade me? And that is the proper way to go through life with media messages. And I think it's going to, all those similar questions are going to be important with the use of AI as well. All right, Matt. So we've really dug in on this AI for educators. Um, for people who are looking for this book, by the way, it's where you get your books. It's Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble online. Uh, it's also available as an ebook on the Kindle. So no matter where you are in the world, you can get it right away on the Kindle version, at least. And, um, I'm really loving to see it showing up in people's hands and people are reading it and diving into it. And the reviews have been fantastic, but this is just book number six. Obviously we can't, Talk about all six books, Matt, but I want to double back just for a second and maybe talk about where this all started. And mm. uh, and so this all started with you speaking and blogging around this message of ditch that textbook. Um, maybe take us back to the beginning of where that all came from. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And, and Dave, you know, you've, you've been a big, a big part of this from, from pretty close to the the very beginning. But, um, so it, it, it all just started in my own high school Spanish classroom, teaching in a little bitty rural high school in West central Indiana, graduating class of 32 kids, like teeny tiny little school, um, teaching all levels of high school Spanish. And I started to develop this, this secret uh, that my students all knew. The teachers in my school, they didn't know. My principal didn't know. And the secret was that my students and my high school Spanish classes couldn't speak Spanish, which is kind of a problem if you're a Spanish teacher, right? And I kept thinking, my goodness, Babies can acquire a new language without learning verb conjugation drills. They're just, there has to be a better way. And so I started experimenting with different things. Um, you know, just, just little 
twists on the things that I found in the textbook, or I would just envision something fun that I thought would work that would help my students acquire the language a little bit better. And little by little by little, I found more of those examples to the point where I was relying on my textbooks less and less. And eventually, after doing enough of that stuff, I just quit using my textbooks. It wasn't that I was going rogue. I wasn't going away from, you know, like the scope and sequence of the books or the academic standards or, you know, anything like that. I was still following the curriculum. I just wasn't using the terrible practice questions and the terrible uh, descriptions that the textbook was using. I was trying to do something, you know, more engaging or more, you know, that, that communicated a little bit more effectively. And so that that really put the seed in my heart that that grew into that concept of ditch that textbook. It's not that textbooks are evil in and of themselves, but it's that we can do so much more than just teaching to the table of contents of our textbooks as teachers, you know. And so, you know, over the the years I started I started a blog. I was actually a journalism major in college and not an education major at first. So I've always kind of loved writing. And eventually I wanted to start a blog to share some of the things I was trying in class. Successes, failures, like all of it. And then little by little by little, um, you know, it started to grow and more and more people started to find it. And um, eventually at one point, our paths crossed. I don't know, Dave. If you remember this, uh, one of the first times where where we met was at a uh, at a teaching conference in Indiana. Do you remember anything about that? Absolutely, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I remember we we met and you saw. I think I did the keynote maybe at that conference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember I just talked about this on another podcast recently, by the way, where uh, you contacted me and we were talking yeah. and you were asking some advice about. Uh, your speaking career and getting more workshops yeah. and bookings and things like this. And I remember, I, I can remember telling you, well, you need to write a book, Matt. And I, I also remember what you told me. You said, you don't understand. I'm the ditch that textbook guy. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> do you know what people are going to say? If I, if I, the ditch that textbook guy, like is trying to sell a book. Yep. Yep. And that's right. And, and there was, I mean, there was, there was a a little bit of pushback and people love to point at the irony. Oh, this is a book about ditching textbooks. Like this doesn't make any sense, but Hey, I covered it in the introduction. I always just pointed to that. And I'm glad that I was able to get past that, you know, because I had, I mean, it's like what you told me, you said, go write your manifesto for education. Like what does the education world need to hear that you uniquely have in your heart to share that's going to be a value to them. And I'm I'm glad that I did. And <laughs> here we are six books later. And um, you know, I'm I'm still getting that opportunity to. And I I thank you for you know taking a chance on on me. I remember when we first had that conversation, um, A, I was a little bit starstruck because I had just read Teach Like a Pirate not long before that. And I thought that it was super cool that I was getting to talk to you. Um, but B, I, you know, I I one of the things we said on that conversation, I said, I don't know anybody who can publish me. I don't even know anybody. And you're like, well, I'll do it. <laughs> and that was like right in the early days. I think I was like the fourth or fifth book out of the yeah. out of the gate. And um changed my life. Really, it did. So um, yeah, it's been it's been a wild, wild journey. And I'm so thankful that you've been a part of it. Well, it's been amazing to work with, get a chance to work with you for all these years. And uh, then the other book I wanted to highlight is this was something that I had been like 
wanting for a long time. And I wanted tech like a pirate to be a book. I mean, it's just so perfect, yeah. right? Like just take the yep. A out of teach like a pirate and it says tech like a pirate. This is perfect. And mm-hmm. uh, eventually convinced you to pull this book together. And I know you've done some amazing speaking and workshops around it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so tech like a pirate is kind of a book long riff on one of the lines uh, yes. from teach like a pirate. Maybe if you could explain that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, uh, when I, when I read teach like a pirate, there was that one line that just kind of like echoed in my ears for a while after I read it. And that was, don't just teach a lesson, create an experience. And the more that I thought about it, all of my examples, you know, I think that's one of the common things I bet Dave, that people get out of reading teach like a pirate is whenever you ask the questions and you give them the hooks, they start to have their minds spin off into their own classroom and think, well, what would that look like with me? And for me, all of my examples involved technology. You know, they involved the, you know, the the desktop computers that I had in my classroom at the time. That shows you how long ago that was, um, or the iPads that we had access to. And I kept thinking, oh, there's this cool website. Oh, there's this cool app. Oh, I could totally do this, that, and the other. And you know, all of those examples, I just kept kind of like gathering, gathering, gathering all of these examples of how you could teach like a pirate with technology until eventually there was a book. And so I took all of those examples and it noticed that they all kind of like fit into these, you know, seven buckets and those seven buckets became seven chapters of a book. And um, yeah, the, the rest, the rest is history. And that's, that's still been one of my favorite books to write because it's about student engagement, something that I know both of us are really passionate about, but it's also been something that I think people have enjoyed, you know, like they, they've, They've enjoyed it's it's almost like we do it for the kids, but we do it for ourselves just as much. You know, there's so many teachers that are considering leaving the profession because it just becomes drudgery. And, you know, learning shouldn't be that way. Um, you know, learning is discovery for everybody and it's fun and it's playing with new ideas. And like whenever you get whenever you get all everything kind of moving in the right direction with that, it changes things. And I think that's been one of my favorite things about tech like a pirate is seeing the joy that comes out of teachers where they get to rekindle their fire for teaching. But then it also, of course, gets reflected in the students and they don't have the drudgery experience of being in class. <laughs> I don't know. You got me, you got me going on this one, but it's, it's, it's been, it's been such a, such a blast on my end to, to get to be a part of that. Yeah. And so for, as Matt's talking about all of his examples of the hooks in Teach Like a Pirate being tech examples. If someone has not read Teach Like a Pirate, it's important to note that absolutely none of my examples were technology. And I was- That's true. And so what Matt did was super important for the message. And that kind of brings me to this next point, which I've asked, been asked so many times, Matt, like for example, they say, well, why isn't this in the book? Or why isn't that in the book? And yeah. one of the things they ask all the time is why, why is there not more techno- educational technology in the book. And I have to just be completely honest with them. I tell them it's a very simple answer. It's because I wasn't very good at it. And I wanted to write the book from a very authentic place. Like if I was not doing it successfully in my classroom, I didn't want to write about it. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, and I wasn't trying to write the encyclopedia teaching. I was trying to write my story and my message and things that I knew to be effective. But at the same time, I also knew that I wasn't telling the whole story. And so when people say, how come you didn't write more about ed tech? It's because, well, uh, why am I going to write 
in a mediocre and inauthentic way about something when I can tap into someone like Matt, who's an expert at it and bring Matt on board. And so that's always been kind of the, after Teach Like a Pirate, the mission has been to find people that are doing amazing things in their classrooms and to try to amplify their voices and um, to be able to do that with you has been fantastic. And Matt, the other thing that I've really enjoyed from watching you is how much you have developed as a speaker. And so, you know, I think early on your workshops, you know, were very, uh, they still are very hands-on and practical, but you have become increasingly like an amazing performer and stage presence in keynotes. And that's been something that's been really fun to watch. And so has that been something that you've consciously worked at? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I think some, I think there's a, there's a misconception that whenever you see somebody get on stage and perform and do a really good job at it, that that person is just gifted and it just came out of them. And that was the first take and, oh my goodness, they have something that I don't have, you know, like, like you write in uh teach like a pirate. It's like the, the flat, the, the blinding flash of lightning, you know, the, the creativity that just strikes you. And it's like, oh, well, there it is, you know, and it's not that way with me at all. I've, I'm just like you, I, I'm sure um, I've had to work at it a lot, um, you know, trying to develop stories and trying them and seeing what works and seeing what doesn't and honing them. I actually got, got training on public speaking and performance and all of that, um, you know, trying new little bits every so often, trying things that, you know, sometimes work a little bit and you're like, okay, there's still some gold to be had here if I will just mine it long enough. And then there's other things where you try them and it's like, nope, that's that's just not going to work. But I think the big thing is that if you can, it's it's just like anything else. If you continue to work at it and you develop the skill and it's important to you, it's that hard work you know, ends up, ends up paying off, you know, if you're willing to study it and watch what, like, for instance, um, someone, someone drew to my attention. And I think this is so true. Like, you know, everybody wants to go see Taylor Swift in concert right now. Right. The, I, I saw someone in one of my public speaking circles saying, you know, you watch her and every like expression on her face every movement that she makes every you know like all of those little things are perfectly choreographed for every single song throughout the entire concert it's because she works at it you know and so yeah that's that's something that i've definitely had to work at but it's also such a fun creative outlet too you know to be able to take something that's in your heart and in your mind and be able to put it on stage in a way that resonates with the audience that clearly communicates a message and also makes them feel a certain way so that they will take action afterwards. And it's one of the hardest things I've ever done, um, but it's still one of my favorite things to do. In fact, I'm working on, I'm like actively right now in that process. I'm working on a new uh, keynote for the AI for Educators book, um, focusing very heavily, Dave, you mentioned it at the beginning of the the show, focusing very heavily on the tomorrow glasses concept. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited about that, but I also know there's a lot of doubt and frustration. And sometimes I'll like, I, I just had my notebook out, um, on a flight a couple of days ago and I was just like looking at it and jotted a couple of things and I just had to put it away. 
I was like, no, it's, it's just, it's not happening right now. But then there's other days when it just flows and you just, you go with it. So yeah, it's, it's definitely something that, that I've had to work on and, and we'll continue to work on. Yeah. Well, it's absolutely been paying dividends because you're just doing remarkable keynotes and workshops now, Matt. It's fantastic. And as we're kind of coming to a close here, there's so many ways that people can connect with you. All of them fantastic. Uh, like I mentioned, Matt has an unbelievable blog and he reaches people through his email list. And if someone is interested in getting involved in your email list, if someone's interested in bringing you to speak, connecting with you on social media, like where are the best places to go to get involved and find out more about Matt Miller? Yeah. So probably the easiest and best way is just go to ditchthattextbook.com. That's where you can find all the social media handles, um, you know, speaking stuff. Uh, we have, I think, more than 700 blog posts over my career in blogging at this point. Um, so there's there's lots of lots of resources that you can find there. Um, Dave mentioned the email newsletter. That's probably that's probably the highest value thing that I put out there that um people will just come up and tell me that they you know that they appreciate it and they look forward to it um so it's an it's an email newsletter that comes out a few times a week that gives you just some practical things that you could try in your classroom right away i i talk about it as being a pipeline of new ideas for your lesson plan book um and it's completely free so if anybody's listening to this and wants to check it out they can go to ditchthattextbook.com/join and if you do that, you get signed up for the email newsletter. You also get some free eBooks full of practical teaching ideas. I, I really feel like if you get those free eBooks, it's almost like I'm helping you write your lesson plans for the next few weeks. You know, so if it sounds pretty nice for somebody to write your lesson plans for you over the next couple of weeks, like that's benefit in and of itself. So, um, and then of course I'm I'm big on Twitter. That's my my favorite social media place, and you can find me at J Matt Miller. J Matt with two T's Miller. Yeah, be sure you get connected with Matt. Matt gives away so much content for free that like every once in a while I like contact Matt. And say like Matt, like you're giving away too much stuff. Like what's, but it's uh it's really grown your audience and you create such incredible value that then when you do have a project like AI for educators come out, people are more than willing to support you. And so you and you heard it right here. Matt is developing a brand new keynote on the AI for educators message and the tomorrow glasses. And so if you're interested in bringing this hot topic to your conference, to your district, to your teachers. Make sure you get in contact with Matt. You could be on the early end of getting um, this keynote. And of course, you can always bring him in for the Tech Like a Pirate message, digital textbook message, all these other messages as well. Um, and he'll come in and do a fantastic job and take your teachers who are maybe a little hesitant, maybe feeling a little overwhelmed right now, and really break it down and make it something that they feel that they can that they can do. And like I mentioned earlier, that's one of Matt's superpowers. And so he's not someone that's going to come in and overwhelm them and uh, leave them frazzled. But he's someone that takes someone a group of educators who are maybe already overwhelmed and frazzled and relieves some of that and makes people feel that everything is doable. And so make sure you get connected with Matt. And Matt, um, again, thank you so much for being a part of the Dave Burgess Consulting family. And I really appreciate you taking the time tonight to come on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, Dave. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Dave Burgess Show. Let's connect. I am at Burgess Dave on Twitter. My name just flipped around to Burgess Dave. On Instagram, I am DBC underscore INC, and I blog at DaveBurgess.com. Please share your thoughts and comments on social media using the hashtag DaveBurgessShow. It would mean the world to me if you share the show with friends and colleagues, and I would be honored if you left a positive review on whatever platform you listen on. Hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And if you have a question, a topic, or a guest recommendation for the show, just email me at dave at daveburgess.com, put podcast question in the subject line, and I absolutely cannot wait to join you on the next episode.